Mr. Pop. Dark. When the little birds are nesting, and I listen to them too, there's two lonesome people in the whole wide world. That's me and the man in the moon. Hello and welcome to Miskatonic University Radio, a podcast exploring Fantasy Flight Games' Arkham Horror the Guard game. I'm Dane. I'm Dan. This is Ben. And that's Dan right there. <laughs> and today, listeners, we're coming at you with a very personal subject. You know us. We best not be coy about it. We all love Carcosa. It isn't a secret anymore. We like pretty much every part of the campaign. It comes with incredible player cards that we still use today like three cycles later so we thought we'd do a another revisiting of a old or older campaign but we wanted to try and break it down into a new format here so instead of breaking it down kind of scenario by scenario and looking at each card card by card we're going to be confronting some specific questions that we designed to help inspire maybe your recountings and tales from the Incredible Campaign. I think that uh, we all have pretty lofty tales from Carcosa that we can all share, like running clad in a straitjacket down the halls of an asylum while setting kitchens on fire and letting inmates run amok. Um, so so we want to get to those questions here, I think. Um Let's start this glorious slideshow that Ben designed. <laughs> All right, so we're gonna we're gonna try to answer some of the most pressing and uh, important questions about Path to Carcosa. And uh, our first question is: How well does the doubt and conviction mechanic tie lore to gameplay in Carcosa? So, what what, what, what do we think about this? So it's not the right word, but like uh, vague on how it's working. Like you see it pop up kind of early in the campaign as like, um, oh, you have to make a decision. Oh, you got to mark a doubt or mark a conviction in your campaign log based off that decision. I know Dan was always very confused on why we marked one or the other. Uh, he, <laughs> well, he even listened to read the story text and then I was like, oh, what? Yeah, no, screw the No, it's, it's not that. It's <laughs> it's like like the way that it's supposed to work is that generally when you make decisions that indicate that you are not sure whether the you know Carcosa is real and whether like uh, the spooky guy is actually real and you think it might just be all in your head, then you get doubt points. And if you make decisions that are like, no, this is definitely real and we need to stop it, then you get conviction points. And I think that by the end of the campaign, that is chugging along pretty well. I, I feel like what confuses people that play it for the first time is some of those initial decisions that you make seems kind of not super thematically strong like you get how does it work on the first one you get doubt if you go to the police or something no if you don't go to the police i think right i think if you go to the police you get conviction because you're like confident that there was a problem and then yeah. you take the police to the a theater and it's like not on fire and they're like hmm, that's suspicious <laughs> why do you have all that theater money in your pocket and you're like i don't know and you went away and then uh <laughs> 
yeah, the, other is, the other option is like, no, we can't trust it. We can't trust anybody. We can't trust the cops. We can't, you know, we got to go figure this out on our own. And then it's like, oh, is that really the right decision? Sh- should you be doing this by yourself or whatever? Yeah, like, maybe. You know. I mean, uh, maybe that's not a good example. But I, I feel like early on, there are a couple of cases where it feels like it feels like you might very well make that decision primarily based on other information besides whether or not you think the king in yellow is real, but you still get doubt or conviction points. And that always kind of confuses me. Maybe. I mean, the last king, you have to like either go back and kill everybody or leave. Um, or what's the third one? I don't know. We always put the chair in front of the door. We put the chair in front of the door. <laughs> yeah. Which gives you neither doubt or conviction. So I never actually remember what the other options are. Um, the chair is the morally ambiguous choice, I think. You either. So when you burn them, you get the conviction. And when you just run away, you get. De- oh, no. Can't you walk back in? Isn't that the well, option that gives you? Uh, that? You go you back in and kill everyone. Meeting. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah, that gives you the doubt or something. Yeah, know, we, yeah, yeah. We just always goes chair. Like that's always the funniest option, even though. It <laughs> well, because if you do go back in and kill everyone, then any any of them that you didn't kill during Last King are considered dead, so you don't run into them again. But right. then yeah. you take a mental trauma later, which actually sucks. Yeah. 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 So they punish you both ways that you go. I think right because if you go with doubt. Um, you get, there's a potential anyway, at least in the, in the last King, there's the potential for those really big, scary enemies to come back and haunt you throughout the, the campaign. Just, just sprinkled in there little, little of the H man special all across the campaign. So that is, uh, (laughs) I guess pick your poison, right? Um, so the first instance being the cops, uh, like whether you want to tell the police about it or not. Second instance being, uh, in the last King, I feel like they all kind of have a pretty linear approach to how the doubt and conviction work though. The, the other thing that um, I think is worth mentioning about this is this feels to me like kind of like a prototype for what they would later do with the chaos tokens and the kind of branching pathways in forgotten age and later campaigns where in Forgotten Age, the equivalent of doubt and conviction is like Alejandro versus Ichtaka. Sure. But it's, sure. it's entirely measured by how many of each token you have in the bag. There's not like a separate thing to track. And the Carcosa thing feels like a slightly clumsier version of that same thing, but they probably did it because there's like a limit to how many of a single token you can realistically have in the bag, right? And that limit is basically like three. So. In like, Carcosa, like yeah. when you make the doubt or conviction decision, it does like change which tokens are in the bag, um, but only like temporarily. And yeah, it's yeah. the next scenario, which uh, it's it's an alright way to approach it. It's kind of like lets you change your mind if you want to switch between like maybe you're really confident that spooky guy is is real, and then like halfway through you're like uh, maybe I'm just dreaming, so you can switch it and it kind of lets you dynamically switch. While well, in Forgotten Age, you're kind of stuck once you yeah. once you make a decision, you have to live with it. But so but, it's just a way to pr- approach it. But this was, I mean, the cool thing about Doubt and Conviction is that I think this was the first time we had really seen scenarios that had very radically different ways that they played out based on stuff like this because Dunwich didn't really have that. But in Carcosa, uh, Phantom of Truth and Dim Carcosa and some of the other scenarios have like entirely different sort of objectives based on whether you have more doubt or conviction. That That's really cool. Yeah. yeah Phantom yeah. of Truth is the big one there, right? Cause it's either you're chasing the guy, the organist around, or he's chasing you around and you either want to doom to advance or you don't want doom to advance. I've forgotten which is which, which correlates with which, but but it, it makes the scenario play out way differently yeah. if you're 
chasing him and trying to get Doom to advance to survive the night or the other way around. We just did Conviction, and I believe Conviction is the one where he's chasing you, and he does like three points of horror, and he's very mega scary. And then I think yeah. the Doubt is probably where you're chasing him. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I think that this coming off of Dunwich, where we don't really have an aspect of of that that duality and figuring out like how it how how it's tying your decisions into what's going on in like. Uh, Haster's world and all that, it it works considerably better than that. I feel like Dunwich is a little bit more low to the ground in a sense because there's not as much uh, there's as much like weight with each decision that you're making. Whereas the first time you're presented with this like doubt and conviction, you're like, oh, this is this is permanent. You know, like <laughs> I have to I have to make a tally mark in this book, and and you know it's going to be. Uh, and I think it's effective in that way, in that, like, when you're first approaching it, you don't really know, like, if there's a correct choice. And in the end, I don't really think there is, right? Yeah, there isn't really. It's like, you, there's different story paths there, story paths there, and it branches off, and it's not, it's not like one's better than the other or anything. It was, it was definitely, a, it was definitely an evolution for the game, for sure. Should we, um, should we move on to the next one? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah let's go for it. <laughs> Kraken. Pastor count one. I guess now we're at two. Yeah, you gotta you gotta slow down a little bit. Yeah, <laughs> I say it. No, I always oh, okay. Dan always yells at me and says I want us to get the bad ending by saying <laughs> too much. It's not. Thanks super, for keeping track, Kraken. It's not super hard. <laughs> so next question: uh, Which encounter cards are the most Carcosian? That is to say. Or which evoke the madness of Carcosa in the most thematic way. I'm, I'm with Dan. Uh, Dan did not want to use this word, and I did not know you were going to pronounce it that way. It sounds very awful. It rhymes with ocean. That's weird. I love it. <laughs> Why do you love it, it? It's gross. <laughs> Is it, like, moist? It's ugly uh, to look at and to say. I love it. So... We uh, at the core of, I guess, encounter cards in Carcosa. It's it's like inevitable that we're going to be talking about hidden cards, right? Like hidden cards yeah. are the kind of the the central like bread and butter, the pizza dough, if you will, of of uh, H Man's uh, world in Carcosa over there. Yeah, so those are like a primary way to. I think that the designers added to added them to the game to try to help uh, so so discord discourse words uh, between between <laughs> players. It's like, oh, uh, hey, can you run over here and kill this enemy? And you look at your hand, and you're like, oh, can only take one act, move action this turn. A turn, and you're like, nah. nah. <laughs> <laughs> I think you got it. Or you know, I don't, I don't, I don't feel like this. I don't feel like going and doing that right now. I got, I got to deal with this. I got to play this knife. Or something. So, <laughs> uh, so I thought I, I like I like the hidden mechanic. I think it adds at least in multiplayer to uh, the amount of hidden information that you're is forced upon you. Because uh, otherwise, it's just like kind of your hand, and you're like you can kind of like vaguely discuss what's in your hand uh, for the most part. So that's not always super hidden information. So I, I like that, and also it can you know make, make you not trust your your companions as much, especially I think there's ones later that are like, uh, you have to stab somebody or uh, <laughs> yeah. steal, money, steal money from them or I forget what those ones are in the later of the campaign. But I, don't know, I like that. Mm. 
Yeah, yeah, certainly. I think that uh, the core ones, the ones where you can only take like one action moving or um, you have to you have to take a resource or something like that um, per those ones are kind of taxing, but not like not as bad as the later ones where you're actually like stabbing your friends. And um, in the unspeakable oath, there's, there's some of the hidden cards where you actually have to like do the bad thing that has pertains to that scenario. So you have to like throw in a monster enemy or you have to throw in like a lunatic enemy and stuff like that. So those ones, I mean, that's all just really, that sets it apart so much from, from Dunwich and even like, um, you know, the, the later campaigns, like Forgotten Age and things, because it's it's kind of unique in that way. We see it come back in the Dream Eaters once, but as far as, like, encounter cards go, hidden cards, for me anyway, are super, super tied to Carcosa. Um, if I had to pick a, a non-hidden card, though, as, like, my my favorite deliciously Carcosian card, <laughs> it would be uh, Spires of Carcosa. It has Carcosa in the name of it, but... For me, that's just like a really interestingly designed card where it comes out and it goes on to a, the location that you're at and immediately there's doom. And so right there, it's it's kind of already imposing and scary unless it's witching hour. So like the agenda is about to flip and you don't really care. But right. sometimes it's basically time, like a free encounter card. But most, most of the time, of the it's, time it's, it's taxing like the one person that you need to be getting clues and progressing the game. So... And in a lot of ways, it's really thematic, right? Because it it's adding doom, and so so there's these spires that are like erupting somewhere in the distance, and you're like, is that really there? And the more you investigate it, the more you realize that they're actually not there, and the doom just kind of goes away. So for me, that like how it ties to to the Carcosa kind of madness is is kind of right on point. I guess I never really thought about it like that. That's like, oh, you're investigating to realize that they're not real. It's kind of great. It's also it's it, it's interesting because it kind of punishes you for playing like non investing certain types of clue getting cards. Like if if your clue yeah. stuff is all based on investigating using actions on assets or you know doing weird stuff like right of seeking, then you're in trouble. Like you kind of need like yeah. someone who can actually just legitimately pass an investigate test. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Um, Another one that might come to mind would be would be torturous chords, mostly because of the way that we play with it. Because whenever whenever it comes out, uh, there's a hush that goes over the whole table while Dan finds the the most discordant organ organ well, music. It's, it's usually no, it's, it it's the classic like Toccata and Fugue is usually what we put on very sure. loud, and only if yeah. someone like fails it by a lot is usually how it goes. But oh yeah, but uh, or if there's multiple, right? No, uh, really uh, Colin had like three of those. Yeah, like, Colin Colin famously got owned a whole bunch by Torturous Chords at one point. Um, <laughs> you have like yeah. three in front of him. I like, uh, there's a lot of good encounter cards in Carcosa. I do like Spires a lot. One that kind of stands out to me is that, uh, do you guys remember King's Edict? I, it's the one that, it's the one that like moves, uh, for each cultist, it moves a clue from their location onto them, which, and, oh, then it, yeah. and it also makes them stronger. I like that a lot. It has King right in the title, so it kind of references the King in yellow, but in a relatively subtle way. But, uh, I like it a lot because it interacts with cultists, very different types of cultists, very differently in interesting ways. And, you know, like, because if it moves something onto a fanatic, then it's actually almost good because then you can kill the fanatic and get an extra clue. Um, but if it moves something onto, like, one of the guys that, you know, in Echoes of the Past, it's really, really bad because the doom, beco- the clues become doom immediately and it can add, like, six doom immediately. 
But yeah. I, I just like it because it, depending on, there's a couple scenarios where you actually want Doom and then there's other scenarios where you really don't. So depending on the scenario and which particular cultists are in play, it can have a lot of like weird effects, but it's always a card that you have to pay attention to. Yeah. Yeah. I, I like all of the cards that do weird stuff with Doom, especially because there's a couple scenarios where it's like, oh, you actually want Doom. Right. Which in, yeah. is, in itself is very Karkosian to be confused that you're actually trying to advance the agenda or whatever. Uh, yeah. Yeah. That, that I was going to add my argument to Spires of Carcosa even more because Carcosa does really weird things with Doom. So it even adds to that that interest and that intrigue. Yeah, sure. Ben, do you uh, have one? Or? My, one to my own? Oh, uh, I thought I thought, you don't I thought have I to. Can, it's, no it's, fine. it's fine. We can, we uh, can move on if you don't want to. Roadstorm, moving on. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, just say just say Roach Storm. I use the uh, thing like Paul's Art, which isn't technically a, a general encounter card, but and what's spooky? I don't mm-hmm. know. It is it is spooky. I'm getting a little lag on the stream here. Everybody listening, can you guys just uh confirm for us that it's still still it's, going? It's fine. Okay. What? Yeah, it's fine. There's always okay, sorry, still yeah. uh, perfect. It's just me. Yeah. Um so next question was, what is the coolest unreliable narrator moment in the Path of Kosa? Which is like, the whole story is an unreliable narrator. So so it's more like, uh, what part of it kind of like... Uh, the the, really de- it, uh, the degree of unreliability really depends on how you're making those doubt versus conviction choices, of course. Yeah. Yes, yeah. a bit. I mean, you're still like, even if you're like convicted in murdering the, like murdering the man in the pallet mask in palette mask or whatever it's still you're still like kind of confused whether it was the right decision or not i think you know uh because it kind of really kind of you know, whatever when it, the whole point of the is that you're not 100 sure what's going on and uh it's supposed to try to make you like question like oh is am i really doing the right thing is conviction the right path or is doubt the right path i don't know right no way yeah dean says he really loves the dream thing yeah, I was about to say that. So there's this moment uh, going into—is it going into um, the or, the organist? Uh, one? I think it's going into that. It's going into um, Phantom of Truth. I think that's uh, the case. Correct me if I'm wrong, chat. Um, where I you... think no, I, I think it is because I think that that's the first scenario where you're in France in Paris. And I think it's maybe kind of like if you go doubt, it could be like maybe like you never actually went to France, because like th- that <laughs> because like that dream started and then everything after that is like weirder than the first half of the campaign. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So there's this part where you have all these dreams, and normally in in the uh, the campaign log you have like intro one, proceed to interlude two, proceed to interlude you know intro three or and whatnot, um, but. <laughs> In this, it's like it starts off with, uh, you know, proceed to dream two and don't get lost. And you're like, well, I don't know what that means. And then as you're reading down, there's, there's, it's like dream 17, dream eight, dream nine, dream four. And you have to find dream two. And then you have to go back to where that tells you to go. And it's it's really, it was really clever for me anyway. I felt like like they're doing a lot with the medium in that way that I felt so much more engaged um, going into the running around the streets of France and trying to survive against this really spooky guy. So. That's always a nightmare by just by itself trying to, trying to navigate that web of, of dreams. 
what's fine well it's funny because it's it's like uh you know tragedy becoming a farce because in carcosa there was this like you know nest of like dreams that are it's like a spider web across the campaign log or whatever that's like complicated to read but then one campaign later in forgotten age the just like actual campaign guide was like that because there were just so many things that you had to check between every scenario that it was it was like (laughs) yeah so that's what i guess would be my favorite alongside the um I don't think it's very much very like apparent that it's it's not like the very overt moments where the narrator is coming at you and saying like, was that the right decision? Um, because that I think does happen a few times, but in the uh, unspeakable oath, there's that moment where you're running around and you're like, so I'm setting fire in the kitchen. I'm in an insane asylum. They just let me stroll in. I went down to the patient chamber. I let the patients loose. I learned the guards patrol. And now I'm like, have a straight jacket on and I'm sprinting through the yard trying to get out. So like, there's this aspect of the, the, even just the mechanics in the game that make you think, am I like actually just insane right now? <laughs> or am I like seriously investigating this and they're all wrong kind of a thing. So those I think would be my two favorite moments. Yeah, that's uh yeah, that, that's a good one too. I was like uh in Dim Carcosa, so when you advance the acts or agendas or sometimes when you flip the sort of um the locations that have like a story text beneath them and it it kind of like calls back to various things in the campaign. I like that uh there's one thing like that where you it describes you like sitting in the theater again. And it's this cool moment because like, wait a minute, I'm not in a theater. I'm in, uh, I'm in this this spooky other world kind of place, right? But it's like, I don't know, yeah. maybe maybe you're still in the theater. I, I just always like that because it comes right at the end of the campaign when things are kind of uh, coming to a climax. That's pretty cool. Flashbacks and everything. There's yeah. one of those next one of those locations. You're like in the play, and you have to like decide whether or not to like push Casilla uh, or push somebody out of a window. Oh, yeah. that's right. Yeah. Yeah. You're basically forced to do it or you don't get the reward or whatever. Yeah. Like it's, it's cool that it kind of like different things that you flash back to, you flash back to like being an audience member watching the play, but also like being a person like acting out the play. It's kind of cool. Yeah. Yeah. It is very neat. I definitely like the, I I caught on to it the most at the beginning of asylum where it's like, Oh yeah, with the asylum. Oh yeah. We'll, we'll go and walk out into the patient zone. (laughs) Like just the very (laughs) beginning of that. It's like, Oh, okay. They're just, they're just locking us in the asylum. Right. Like, like that's, that's what's happening. I I think all of, I think all of this stuff is really like the reason that Carcosa is a favorite for so many people really comes down to this. If there is a single reason, because I think that later campaigns like Circle Undone, I think is better than Carcosa in some ways, but this kind of like cool, unreliable narrator stuff is something that's more or less unique or very rare in like board games and card games. And it was just so cool to see that done this creatively and this effectively. It's it's just it's really good stuff. Yeah. It's also about how being uh excessively verbose for the most part, which is uh which is good. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Later campaigns are a bit more robust. Uh, time to uh, time to move on. Sure. Yeah. All right. Um, how so, well? Yeah. How well does the cycle pay homage to Robert W. Chambers' original work, *The King in Yellow*, the short story collection, of which four at most 
of the short stories reference uh, King and Yellow stuff, but those are the memorable ones, pretty much. Just the first four, I think, reference it. Either reference like the play or the spooky guy. And, or, and, um... and two of them reference it pretty... There's really like two of them from which most of the kind of Carcosa, Carcosa mythos is taken from, and the other two just kind of like vaguely mention it. Yeah. Like like there's the one about the sculptor guy that just kind of like mentions it offhand, I think. Hmm. Well, I, I didn't realize... I re-listened to them this week i didn't realize like two of them are set in the 1920s they're like yeah Robert chambers like predicting 20 years oh, in the yeah. future with the 1920s yeah, that's, that's yeah. the the original retro futurism yeah. <laughs> that's, like, yeah, that's good stuff okay i guess that's why i got pulled in maybe or some of it but um i mean it, it pays homage to it in that like you're the unreliable narrator aspect really the strongest right so you don't you're not 100 sure that the story that's being told is actually what's going on. Um, but I don't know if it really isn't like directly follow any of the actual stories. Does it? Uh, so I think Phantom of truth tries to kind of follow the what's, what's the, it's uh, not the last King, but what's the other one that's like about the King in yellow, the one where the guy's like running away from the dude, is that the repair of reputations. Is that it? No, maybe, maybe I'm getting confused, but, but one of the short stories is about like this guy that keeps seeing this creepy figure in kind of the distance as he's walking around and he starts trying to escape from him. And that's, I think, sort of like the version of Phantom of Truth where you're running away from the stranger is like, that's the corner you know, dragon. Yeah. It's like fairly, fairly closely tied to that, I think. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You're right. I guess that makes sense that, that it is an organist that's chasing him around. <laughs> um, uh, by the way, do you guys know uh, when the term Carcosa first appeared in uh, literature? It was not in The King in Yellow. Yeah, it was not Robert Chambers. Um, Ambrose I forget Bruce. his name. Ambrose Pierce. There we go. Yeah. Yep. In the play? Uh, what's up? Wasn't it like in the 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 play that is mentioned in the story? Or is that not actually in The King in Yellow? No, I mean, there was an earlier writer that used the term that Robert Chambers borrowed it from Ambrose. Oh, Bruce, yeah. So, yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. But, uh, yeah, I mean, I think that, uh, I think given the kind of, there's really not that much material in this original short story collection. Most of the mythos that grew out of it is kind of like stuff that people added later, um, based yeah. on that initial, just kind of cool, creepy seed. But I think that the, the campaign does a really good job of, hitting the kind of thematic notes that people expect and taking it in different directions and kind of uh, referencing enough of it to make it feel like it's connected to that original series of short stories, but not being like super closely tied to it. Yeah. There's a lot of really cool um, uh, literature, uh, TV that spawned from, Chambers's work and it, and this included, but I think that it does it does do a pretty good job at including a lot of references from from it, like um, the the shores have, of uh, Haley or Haley and um, Casilda. A lot of the imagery and a lot of the characters made in reference were like direct from uh, the Chambers's uh, The King in Yellow, which I thought was. Also, uh, only loosely connected, but I rewatched True Detective season one a few weeks ago. It holds up; it's very good, very good television series. Oh, yeah. so good! So, yeah, so so good. 
Uh, yeah, for for those who haven't seen it, uh, absolutely 100% go watch it. We're not going to give any spoilers here. Just know that it has to do with King and Yellow. <laughs> subscribe to one of the many fine HBO products now available. Um, time to move on. <laughs> yeah. Ooh, this the, this one. Well, I guess in theory it could be controversial, but I have a feeling it's not going to be. <laughs> yeah. So we're going to talk a little bit more about the scenarios now, and you know, which one's the best. That Which one is the, is the best? We're, we're asking it straight up front, guys. <laughs> I think we should, we should we maybe have a rule that we're not allowed to agree? Should we maybe force ourselves to each come up with a different one? That might be more interesting. I prepared myself for this section. I have three options for each. So you guys, you guys can go first. <laughs> uh, it's hard to pick when all of them are like, a pluses to A's, you know, like well, in my book. We, we have a question later that might address this and might contradict what Dane just said. But uh, <laughs> I mean, I think the um, the pallid mask is a scenario that we all really like. The the one where you're in the catacombs and you have the kind of um, the mechanic where the, the map is like randomly assembled. That's just a really, really good one. Um, the way that the sort of geometry of the level is like randomized and is uh, has a lot of impact on how it plays out is really cool the way that it ends with kind of like a things kind of come to a head and you kind of choose whether to sort of uh ha- like how you want to finish it based on whether you want to try to beat the king in yellow or the the stranger rather or whether you want to try to like talk to him that's really neat it also has some of the really cool encounter cards the shadow behind you which is the one that's in the art here obviously is one that we really like but there's even other cool ones like the um the pit below is kind of like a really cool has some cool gameplay attached to it so yeah yeah, I mean that's that's I think an all time classic, one of the best scenarios in the game. I like a lot of the other ones too. Like I also really like Dim Carcosa, but I think Pallid Mask is definitely my favorite. If I had to pick one, I think uh, Pallid Mask definitely one of my favorites. Um, but if I had to pick one from Carcosa that wasn't Pallid Mask, it would be uh, the Unspeakable Oath. I think um, that that moment where you're halfway through the scenario and you're questioning your own sanity was like completely unforgettable. Um, and I recently watched uh, team covenant play through and that moment is so tense. I know that some people uh, look at it pretty negatively because of the fact that it can party wipe, so to speak. Um, but it's that I feel like that mostly just adds to the, to the tension of, of you might just be locked in there forever as an insane patient and you know that might be where you belong in within the the span of the lore in general um but i think that it does such a good job at tying those mechanics to the overall like feel and aesthetic of of carcosa that it's just it's so perfect for me um and that also for nostalgia reasons because when that happened i think i think dan didn't didn't wasn't alex playing min and min died or something and never came back <laughs> we've, we've we've definitely seen that happen yeah i think yeah. that yeah it definitely gets people yeah rest in peace to all the all those lovely investigators who never came out of the asylum what about you ben so I, I definitely like Pallet Basque. uh unspeakable wolf was not in my top three so now i have to decide yeah the- same <laughs> So uh, I guess I, I always like I always like the scenario in the campaign where it's like oh you try to do as much as you can it's the push your luck type scenario with like Last King um, like that's those are always like very good uh, but I think I might like Black Stars Rise a little bit better just because 
I'm still not sure that like the correct way to approach it. Like if you're supposed to spread out doubt to slowly find the right scenario until you can get to the end of it to try to figure out which is the correct path or not, or if it's like can be better just to pick one and rush it. Um, and I think I've played it with different groups, and they always like it's not it's not like obvious which strategy you're supposed to go with. So I always it feels like a different play experience each time. And they definitely make it very hard for you to figure out what the correct one is. Like it's not it's not like you can. Uh, with the correct uh, agenda or the correct act is uh, it's not like you can just easily pick it out. You have to really get to the end of, like to explore, get a lot of clues, get to like the second section and wander around. And there's a lot of cool themes too. Like when you go and like talk to the priest or whatever, if you go back and look at the card, there's definitely like a spooky Cthulhu guy in the background. That's like, Oh, that was, that was the priest. Um, so there's all like subtle like spookiness in there that like makes you question what's going on. Uh, on top of like the the first off choice of like, oh, we gotta try to figure out if we go into the sky or into the water. Although so, you think- you can't be sure that that wasn't just like a piece of art that they had floating around from like Mansions of Madness that they were like, yeah, sure, let's use that here. I mean, <laughs> even if even if it was the case, I feel like it was a good yeah, yeah. I think. I know, and I know. In return to uh, Black Star's Rise, they also add some hidden cards that, like, are like um, if you put a Doom on Agenda A or Act A or whatever, uh, yeah, that happens to you, which is great. I really like that how it builds with the hidden mechanic because it's like, oh, uh, what, what should we put it on? We've been putting it, we've been stacking on on A, and you're like, uh, why don't we do a C this turn <laughs> just to shake it yeah. up a little bit? Yeah, Tony's like sweating because he's got two sanity left. And- yeah, that's. <laughs> Yeah, that's that's definitely good. That's definitely good. Uh, yeah, I mean, Carcosa, lots of lots of good scenarios. Definitely a lot of options there. Yeah, let's uh, let's move on though. Uh, so, kind of a maybe a sort of opposite question: Does Carcosa have any flops? Uh, I I would say, I mean, you know, I think any of these scenarios you can probably come up with a reason to 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 like it. I think Echoes of the Past is the one that maybe is kind of a little bit of a bummer, like. It, it mostly, to me, it feels like if you're able to keep the cultists under control, like when it starts, if you're playing with four player, you have three of those sort of um, <laughs> book reader <laughs> cultists. Yeah, you have three of those seekers in play. And it's really tough because like the first couple rounds, things go wrong and you could just like suddenly lose an agenda really fast. But if you're able to kill those first three, you can pretty much just keep it under control. And it just feels like a really long slog of a scenario where you're never really in serious risk. Um, yeah. And, and return to, they sort of tried to fix that. And I think they partially did, but part of the way they did it is by adding an entirely new floor. So it's just this absolutely massive map and it feels like it, it takes forever to get anywhere if you don't have like open gate and stuff. So for me, that's one that is, you know, that's one that I would be more or less happy to skip. I mean, it's not terrible. It's still fine, but it's not as great as the rest of the scenarios. Yeah. I think in terms of if I had to pick a scenario that, I was not as excited to, to to go through. It would be that one, mostly because the movement in it is kind of awkward by that point. Because, I mean, even the return to, I was excited to see that there was a basement situation, but I was really hoping for some way like, oh, there's like a pantry or something that you can climb in and, and or a, uh, you know, those, those little like laundry a shoes. Yeah, that'd be awesome. Uh, yeah, that you can use to, to go from like the ground floor or something like that. But, and I, I guess oh, they do have that passageway mechanic but yeah a couple of the locations are connected uh either directly or like with the passageway once you find mr peabody yeah it's ra- uh, it's random though you may or may not get them and even if they are connected it's still such a huge map in the return to version 
Yeah. yeah. A couple of locations are like very awkward where like someone's like, oh, you can't increase your intellect or something when you investigate. Yeah. Like, it's pretty nasty. Yeah. And there's just a, even then it's like, it's still pretty easy. To, Dan's right. Because of the doom, like you can control how many turns you have by keeping control of the doom. And it's fairly easy to do on at least on higher player counts. I don't know about lower, but it kills attention a little bit. I think. It's also, yeah. you can afford to screw up a couple of times. They give you so many agendas. They give you like four agendas or something. Uh, yeah, yeah, that's like, right. but, um, Was yeah. that the one that they had to fix or else sometimes you could just like progress immediately to, like you could lose on the first turn or something like that? Or is that not, is that not Echoes? I don't think so. The one you could lose on the first turn is, is Train. That's kind of, oh, that's okay. kind of yeah. uh, which I had happen once. Um, <laughs> But, um, so Dane, you, you're going to pick something other than Echoes of the Past? Honestly, <laughs> every single, maybe the curtain call would be like up for me just because it's, once you kind of get the gist of it, and this is, this is not, um, return to curtain call. I think that that kind of fixes a lot of the, uh, ways that I didn't like curtain call, but curtain call kind of as an introduction to Carcosa is cool. But once you kind of figure out the mechanics and know that, oh, this is the big, the big shrieking horror thing is going to come back every, you know, some odd amount of turns. And we just have to weather the storm enough. And it becomes less of like figuring and like buying coming in. Like it has less to do with that and more to do with like, okay, so if we murder this guy on this turn, and if we can get here in three turns, we get to keep the victory from this guy. And that's like all that scenario becomes for me. Maybe it's just me that looks at it like that. And it's more of like, this guy just keeps coming back. We need to keep him contained so that we can leave at the right point. And half the time it's frustrating because he'll just come back out. Cause like you get a uh, unfortunate spires or something like that. Um, but for me that it just kind of loses its mystique after you realize that point where, Oh, this guy's just going to keep coming back. But Return 2 fixes that with, like, stacking health every time he comes back, so he's actually scary to deal with. Yeah, I do like the initial aspect of, like, trying to time killing him and then, like, advancing the final act and getting out before he respawns. But yeah. generally, like, seems kind of easy to time it like that, time it correctly, uh, without too much risk of death. So that, that was in my bottom three. Uh... I cheated for my actual third worst one. I actually don't like Return to the Last King because uh, it adds it ad- it makes it like seven or eight turns longer. Yeah, but not any harder. And, it, and it, it's also they mix in like story cards that don't flip one of the party guests, which is nice. Yeah. But you still might get one of the you still might get one permanently wiped out like three turns into the game before you have a chance to do anything. Yeah, I mean that that part's okay. It's just like yeah, the adding the extra stuff like it's like oh okay, we have more time to to try to get all the things. Um, but I feel like it doesn't make it more fun. I guess because I liked the Last King as it was originally, it was harder. I think they went in the wrong direction with Return Two, but I mean it's still fine. That's fair. Yeah. Uh, I feel I. I- Sorry, I generally like The Last King a lot. And I think that Return to makes um I can't remember her name, but the but the one who moves around yeah. and stops on them, that makes her actually frustrating to deal with. But yeah. she 
<laughs> the the art I kind of like excuse it for the artificial like lengthening of it because the art and everything that they put into the return to set is like is there for me. So I don't really consider that to be as bad as it probably maybe is. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I just felt the timing on it was already like the ideal, like, you know, with three, four people, it takes like two-ish hours and the return to it takes like three hours. <laughs> yep. and it like didn't, I was like, I don't know, that didn't do it as much for me, but uh, yeah. I mean, all in all, like, I, I, I still always just feel like Carcosa. I would, I would almost rather play any any scenario in Carcosa before I played some in other scenarios. Yeah. Just because of the design, everything was was fantastic. So this is really just saying, like, for me anyway, it's comparing like a B to an A. Yeah. You know, it's like I could pick out these things, but really, I, I loved every second of it, and I know it. So let's uh, let's answer another question. Uh, what is the most challenging scenario in Carcosa? Any? What do you guys think about this? I know a lot of people would say the unspeakable oaf, um, mostly because of the instant kill. <laughs> is that because? It, well, or is that because it's really hard in solo or something? Oh, that's that's actually a good point too to bring up. I know yeah. that uh, people who play solo say that in solo it's much harder because you still have to complete the same number of um, tasks throughout the asylum. But you, and but those are like very spread out. So multiplayer, you can kind of split up, and you know, I'll go to the kitchen, and start the fire. You go downstairs and get the patient. Um, but in solo, you have to do it all yourself, and there's it doesn't account for like the, all the extra actions you need to spend on movement, turn around, and whatnot. Right. While dealing with monsters and all that jazz, so it can make it very hard to play on solo without uh, getting the the trapped in the asylum forever ending. Yeah. Yeah, that is true. Um, the other one, uh, Black Stars Rise. That's that's what I was going to say. Yeah, that's that's another really tough one. That can insta kill you, I think. Uh, can it? Yeah. I mean, I guess a yeah. lot of times the the second to last scenario can like where Duma waits. Like if you don't finish that's it, true. you don't get to continue. Yeah. But that's that's kind of a minor contributing reason. But like kind of the 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 geometry of the locations and. Some of the encounter cards are pretty brutal. Um, the thing you're not really doing. The thing that really stands out to me about Black Stars Rise is this is definitely a lots of big monsters scenario, um, and especially depending on, like Ben was saying earlier, the strategy with are you trying to rush one of the agendas or kind of spread doom out between both of them. I think when when the the when each of the agendas advances the first time, you have to shuffle in an encounter set of like pretty big scary monsters like the title yeah. whatever's yeah terrors. like yeah the title terrors the other ones and you just end up with an encounter deck that's very full of like four or five health enemies. So if you have like a really good, you know, guardian in your group, then you can probably keep it under control. But I think especially earlier in the game when we didn't have all the player cards that we now have, it felt like a scenario where you could just kind of get overwhelmed by enemies. Um, and that made it pretty hard. I think it's it's less hard now just because we have tools to deal with it, but it's still one of the harder ones in this in the campaign. Yeah, I guess I agree on that for sure. Um, I, I had a return to curtain call in here actually. I recall that being pretty challenging. It is a uh, lot harder than the regular version. They added the um, the hidden lady, uh, yeah. like tests, right? Uh, which I think doesn't that it does, but she really screwed you over if you have her. <laughs> your hand yeah i think i think kraken in the chat here could attest to that <laughs> yeah and 
And I know they made the scary boss like actually challenging, especially when you're at level zero decks, like trying to control. Like every every time you kill him, he comes back way scarier, kind of like uh, uh, the museum monster whose name I'm forgetting. Um, but yeah, it is because he also like AOE damage and stuff, and it, and it was already hard if your if your guardian was like skids or something, it was already pretty hard to kill him. Like if you had you know Mark or Zoe or, or like a really good fighter deck, you could do it, but killing it multiple times was already difficult. I think for some groups. I'm, I'm yeah. fairly certain, like, killing it the third time is basic, like, really, really hard because yeah. it comes back with, I think, one times the number of investigators' health or something like that. So if you're in a four-person group and, like, even Mark is, like, your your main guardian or something, it has, like, like 12 or 14 health when it comes back the second or third time, and it's just so, Yeah, like, you'd, you'd have to... to you'd have maybe to really you could just... just yeah, maybe. But. It definitely has more strategy in that you like have to think about, oh, do we evade it this turn and then move across the map and let it move a little bit um, versus like just killing it every time. So that's good, but it definitely makes it way harder. So. Yeah. yeah. All right. Uh, next one. What are the best changes in the Return to uh, expansion? That's a tough one. There's a lot of changes. There oh. are. I mean... We we talked about some of them already, but yeah. So I think... uh, yeah, and I mean the the first one that comes to mind is like the resurgent evils, replacing ancient evils with something that actually have, oh, yeah. you have to make a decision about. Yeah, um, which is always an improvement, I think, in the return two sets. I hope they keep doing that where they replace ancient evils with an interesting card. <laughs> um, <laughs> I think, uh, what does Resurgent Evils do? I remember it. You, so I believe it's, you can either Ancient Evils, like right away, or, or you, um, if you would succeed at a skill test three or greater, you automatically fail that skill test. Yeah, because it's a hidden okay. card. It's just really horrible. <laughs> it's a hidden card that goes in your hand. Right. Um, which, like, you basically always, you never really want to put Doom on, so you always put it in your hand and it makes passing by a lot way worse so i think that uh, it's definitely more interesting it also makes the math for like trying to commit or whatever uh you have to like oh well i want to pass but not not by too much (laughs) yeah great um yeah what do you guys the art on most of most of the return to for me just like totally blew me away like carcosa is already kind of a creepy dark place to be that mostly resides in your mind and like the art on like radical treatment um, on the new party guests that you get the they're they're like these um, uh, these women who are like kind of just non-specific party guests and when they go crazy they're like holding a human heart and there's like, like a guy dead on the floor behind them and it, it's it's not like <laughs> it's not like PG thirteen anymore it's like rated rated, rated R. Sure. It's 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 scary. It gets darker. It gets far more gritty. Even like uh, Diane Divine becomes like this huge monster that that is is like grimacing at you as she's. Oh, it's terrifying. So, so wait, sorry. Did they actually change the art for those in the Return to box? Because they have. Did there's there's spooky sides because they didn't have spooky sides originally, right? Oh, they didn't. I thought they did. Uh, the party, I'm, the regular party guests. 
There weren't even regular party guests. There, were, there weren't regular party guests in the oh, original. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You mean the, the regular party guests that aren't, like, the named ones. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and then they added um, uh, Diane Devine uh, a version for her, where she explodes into a yeah. grotesque horror. Yeah, thing. which she didn't have before. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, she just, like, kind of annoyed you slightly before. Yeah, uh, they do. Yeah, no, I mean, they definitely... It's weird, but they always do have, like, super good art in the Return 2 boxes. I'm not really sure why that is, but they do. Yeah, I, I don't have anything super specific to say for this. I just, in general, I think that um, by adding more encounter cards, they just shake things up a lot. Like, it's it's a lot yeah. of new encounter cards that you haven't seen. They replaced, I think, some of the, like, standard corset ones that we've all seen a million times. Um and they added some that kind of tie into the themes of the campaign really well. So that's, that's really cool. I always like that. Yeah. yeah some of them just get way more brutal and some of them aren't as brutal. Like I think delusory evils is kind of manageable. Um, but things like, like uh, corrosion, which was in the, the original one was just so brutal. If you're like the guardian or if you just got your like fingerprint kit down or something. And then it's like, Oh, there it goes. You know, cause most of the locations are appropriately shrouded, but um like maggot swarm all these things that like are just like worse to deal with for in a lot of ways um just a lot more punishing uh so i think most of the return to changes are super positive for me <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah it's 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 pretty good across the board let's the uh, main one, oh, i was going to mention the the cool thing is they actually add like another act to the final scenario right to yeah the, like which they didn't really do before, and they kind of did it creatively, where there's like a you have to go deeper into your mind or whatever. Yeah, uh, that, that was a cool part for me too. I guess I didn't want to give it too much because there's spoilers. Maybe somebody hasn't played the Return to Carcosa yet, but uh, well, we remembered to do a spoiler warning at the beginning of this, right? Uh, this campaign came out like two years ago or three years ago or something. <laughs> Who cares? But no, I, I agree that it, it, the Return to box definitely takes Dim Carcosa from very good scenario that I like a lot to like extremely good scenario. So that's that's pretty cool. Yeah. Uh, for our next question, uh, who is the best Carcosa investigator to have as a dinner party guest? I don't understand this. Who actually throws dinner parties? You're basically just asking, <laughs> you're just asking to catch the deadly virus. If you invite people over for dinner at this point, so. this, this is the 1920s, not the 2020s. I feel like in know. the 1920s, you were going to catch Spanish flu though. It's the same thing. Like that's, it's not, not a big difference. I mean, having a dinner party, you're also like very rich and rich people can't get sick. I think, right. That's not how that works. I mean, the, the mask of uh, red death is specifically about this exact, uh, exact situation, but yeah, I, I don't know. Maybe. Yeah, yeah. I, so I was thinking about this more of like, who would, who would tell maybe the most interesting stories? Like who is most interesting? Who, who would you have the most interesting talk with interesting experiences with? For me, that might be like Safina because painting is cool, art is cool. For Akachi, because she might have some really cool stories of of coming from far lands and and interesting like shamanistic visions and things. Um, I feel like Yorick might just like spew a bunch of Shakespeare and be very sad about how he never got to be an actor, <laughs> and I'd be kind of depressed yeah. at the end of the. Uh, well, I mean, yeah, I think the goal here is like who's. Uh, at, at this witch person party where they're probably all drinking illegally, like who's the most fun to be around while drunk, right? <laughs> it's like York's just going to go full all of Hamlet over in the corner, right? I, yeah. Or he would just like try to start shit because he's an actor. He would just be like, I know we have to make a scene. We have to have some kind of a drama happen at this dinner party or something. You know? That's fair. I mean, and Mark, Mark's gonna like get sad. Yeah, Mark would just Mark would just be bummed out the whole time. Like my wife died. 
Yeah. Uh, like, I know. How's it going over in the corner, Mark? Uh, okay. Oh, it's, oh, it's going right. okay. You know, it's just that uh, I went off to fight in a war and my wife died. <laughs> well, Safina's doing a live painting right now. <laughs> you know, like, She's yeah. I don't... And the sixth investigator. Uh, but, uh, this is definitely everybody, right? We're, we're, we're not forgetting any, uh, we're, we're not forgetting any. No, I, I have all I have all six of them on the side here. Me and Mark, York, Savina, Akachi, Akachi's ghost friend. So, so. All right. Fair enough. Time, yeah, to, so. time to move on. I sure. So. Uh, which cards fell short of their potential? Uh, and Ben, for those of you watching, Ben helpfully compiled a sort of maybe partial list here. There's a lot of cards. <laughs> I was like, oh, what's a card I never put in my deck? Or whenever I put it in my deck, I'm sad. Yeah, I, I would say I remember what, like, three of these cards do. No, more like four or five. But uh, Well, I I was going to make this animated so you, they would, like, layer on top of each other, but I didn't trust you to handle uh, clicking through it. So, unfortunately, I have a, I, I have a PhD, Ben. Just, just, just throwing that out there. In clicking things. Yeah. I've clicked. I've clicked a few things in my day. You know, I've, I'm capable of doing that. Uh, yeah. No. What? Okay. So, so what are some cards that fall short of their potential? I mean, one for me is definitely Time Warp. Like Time Warp is very cool. It breaks a lot of rules. It had like an entire like giant FAQ that Matt Newman had to do when it came out, just yeah. about how it works. And whenever I put it in a deck, I'm always sad for one reason, and it's because I can only play it on investigators that are at my location. And like those are never the people I need to play it on. <laughs> you know, yeah. It's like you can bend yeah. the, the laws of space time backwards. Well, that's why you're you, you got to play it or, as Luke. Yeah, or if yeah. you're Luke, the, the location next to you. <laughs> play it. Play it from the yeah. dream zone. You can just play it on everybody. Okay, on Luke. Yeah, but it's just like usually like someone that like is about to fail horribly or like really needs to pass a test. Like if I would time warp them, it's probably because they like couldn't pick enough cards. And if I'm at their location already, I probably committed a card to them to help them pass. Ben, uh, ben uh, likes Ben likes this card because the, the we have a music cue for it, which is to blast really loudly the Rocky Horror Time Warp song, uh, which which Ben really loves. So, to be fair, right. if you could do that for a card, you know, it's it's got something going for it. I remember this card when it was spoiled during um, uh, Drawn of the Flame. I think spoiled it when it was when it was coming out, and and everybody was immediately like, whoa. You mean that this can happen? And everybody had questions immediately about how Safina uh, and the her signature card interacted with it. But um, yeah, a lot of these cards, other than Time Warp, just kind of, when we saw them, we weren't really just generally impressed. Um, I know that like Armor of Ardeen specifically was something that Sounds really cool, like a really high experience defensive card for once, instead of like a you know flamethrower shotgun kind of a thing. Um, doesn't really excite once you see it. <laughs> it just it can take a lot of damage, and then beyond that, doesn't really do much else. Doesn't give really any utility. So a lot it's of these very... cards kind of like fell a little flat um, in being versatile or something. Yeah, I put the whole set of composure cards on the slide here, just because I never have a reason to use them. I mean, they're those fast; are, they cost. You can spend money to boost yourself, but they're like super vulnerable to just getting trashed. And those like, are pretty bad. Those are yeah. Yeah, yeah. you guys want 
watching, I want to know your opinions on these because I've heard and seen some people use them to, to pretty good effect in that, like, if you're playing solo or something, maybe you don't have access to as much experience that as you might get, or maybe if you're on hard or something. So throwing, like, two combat trainings in a, in a deck or something like that allows you that uh, the capability that you would get kind of from a keen eye or something. Um, I don't know. I haven't tried them. I'd, I'd be willing to, to give it a try if I have like a Peter or something who can constantly tank the horror and I wouldn't have to worry about losing it. Yeah. yeah. I, mean, I, I think it's just like, even in the best case scenario where it never gets trashed, how good is it to be able to spend money to boost skills? Like maybe if they're the right skills and if you have lots of money, then maybe it's okay. But like, that's just, that's not a massive payoff, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I don't really play the big money decks, but maybe they could be good in that. But I don't know. I just haven't found a fit anywhere for me at least. Yeah. Um, uh, the last card I had over here, I didn't have enough room for it on the page. Um, <laughs> There's there's a Lola. Lola's we much maligned by many, loved by a select few, passionately, uh, but but she's never done it for me just because of her double weakness of her character ability, and also having two weaknesses in her deck. I don't know. I feel like they were very close on like making a cool investigator, and I know some people have like slightly marted her to make her like a little bit more, and in some cases powerful. not so slightly. <laughs> yeah. yeah to, to, yeah, to be a little bit more than palatable but yeah I, I would love to see like a parallel Lola where parallel. Um, she becomes like far more interesting in the way of not having like four weaknesses immediately <laughs> um, yeah. but but yeah I don't know like a couple small changes to her even to her printed weakness on her card could make her solid I don't know uh, but some people like her. Some people like the challenge. It's just yeah. uh, it feels like you can't really reach the peaks of some other investigators. At least, at least to me. All right. right. Why don't we move on to this next question? Where Dan's going <laughs> to weave us a story? I think. Uh, well, I mean, so okay. So I did want to talk about this because I've been playing this card a lot lately, and I realized this is from Carcosa, uh, which I I this like just really didn't even hit on my radar when it first came out. Um, and we did for listeners. This is, yeah, Archaic Glyphs, the version of it where you get to get a bunch of clues, uh, which I, I can't read on this. Uh, is it Guiding Stones? Yeah, yeah, Guiding Stones. Yeah, well, so why is this your new favorite card, Dan? It, is, it is ridiculously powerful, and it's one of the best Seeker cards in the game for like a Seeker in a four-player group, because there are now there's so many ways to get your intellect up high now, and there's so many things you can commit to it. Like Dream Diary is good with this. Um, Eye of Truth is good with this. Uh, there's, there's just, there's enough cards that you can throw away to this that it becomes like every card you discard from your hand is basically another clue. And you're also playing the class that can draw a lot of cards, right? So you can pretty much just, even in a four player game, Pathfinder around and like every location that has like eight clues on it, you just get them all in one action. And then you Pathfinder to the next place, and then you get eight more clues. And I, I played this recently with a group of people that were relatively new to the game, and I was playing this Daisy deck that, that does this. And it almost like trivializes a lot of scenarios because you just get all of the clues. No one else really needs to pick up clues, and you get all of them very, very, very fast. And it's just, it's kind of insane. Like, I, I, I'm, I'm kind of baffled by how crazy good this card is. Have, have you guys, I know Dane tried the Rex deck that, that played this once. I did, yeah. I think that uh, one person I'm, I'm particularly excited about using on is is uh, Ursula. I think that just like 
any way that you can get more value out of a single investigate action is is great. Like Rex's inherent ability. This is just like bonkers if you you can just uh, shortcut to another location, triggering both your field works. You're already at a huge amount above like what you need to be at and then you can commit you know whatever else and it's just like kind of the cherry on top and you just get a million clues in one action it seems sounds pretty incredible i haven't tried it since you guys discovered that since at least recently since we've been able to commit so much more stuff although i was in the impression dan thought this was really good because he was playing some type of crazy four-handed solo through the forgotten age for some reason that was that was some of my deck building experimentation uh you know laboratory process to try to figure out how how to do this you're welcome i'm out there in the deck mines uh trying to make good decks you know you're you're welcome i'm i don't have to share this stuff with you guys but i do because i'm nice um no but it's it's for real and and yeah the ursula thing might be good i i I think you really want to play this in somebody that has five intellects because that like every point of it you can get is is huge but yeah either way it's just such a strong card um i mean you really want to build your whole deck around it and you really want to be in a multiplayer game where there's like eight clues per location a lot of the time but if you're in that scenario it's just ridiculously powerful yeah 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 i think i think the emphasis here is probably on like a three or four player game too um it might not get nearly as much value and maybe not even no it wouldn't really Considering in, in like solo or in, or in just a two person game, but D- don't even, once you hit three, or four, yeah, don't even play it in two player. It's like a worse fingerprints kit or whatever at that point. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I could, I could, I could see that, but I think that in a four player game, much kind of the same way that Right of Seeking uh, level what is it four is extremely good for uh, like Akachi in in a three person game because it hits that exact math of three clues every single time you investigate just happening to be times the number of investigators, which is equal to three. This is like, you just get a ridiculous amount of clues because you need to get a ridiculous amount of clues. The action compression is amazing. I, th- yeah. I think the most I've ever gotten in a single action is 11, but I'm sure that that can be beaten. So yeah, yeah. There's locations that have three times, so you need to be able to get the twelve in. Exactly. That's... Well, there's even some that have four times, very occasionally. Yeah. Oh, well, yeah. You gotta gotta do better, Dan. I thought you were the expert with this, and you could clear any any location in one action. So. I, it's a work in progress. You you made fun of me for doing my my forehanded thing to try to test this out. Now you're making fun of yeah, me I, for not having I, a perfect. I stand by making fun of you for doing a solo forehanded playthrough of the forgotten age that there's a you there's that. a dang quarantine going on benjamin look everyone is going insane in their own special ways don't don't uh don't don't judge me that's all i ask don't don't judge <laughs> me. uh we should move on though probably right yeah let's go for it yeah how have um... desperate skills aged uh a reminder Ooh. a reminder for anybody that hasn't played with these cards the desperate skills are a cycle of skill cards that have four icons on them. They're neutral, uh, but you can only commit them if you have three or fewer remaining sanity. Yeah, so these are like an interesting set of cards. I feel like they weren't necessarily a little confusing how to use them when they first came out, but uh, I think they've grown with a couple of extra ads that have come out since then. Um, that lets them use some like interesting builds where you can activate them right away and consistently use them. Like... Um, what is it saying Hebert's key came out later in the cycle? And if you're an investigator that can get that and has like five 
base sanity, you can immediately go down to three and be able to have these active all the time. So you can kind of build a deck around uh, committing these, and then maybe you can use like Yaddle or or something to or some other way to to recur them to just always give yourself plus four on skills, whatever, whichever skill you need, which can be kind of cool. Yeah, uh, I think as more cards come out, um, obviously the whole of card pool will get bit better, but there will be. Um, Four four icons is is definitely enough to to make any any card worth looking at, and because that's that's generally like even if you're at a two versus a four, that puts you up by two, which is generally like the safe zone for things. Um, other things like like uh, meat cleaver, I know that that survivors got a little while after allow you to kind of reliably ping yourself, and maybe you don't want to heal so that you can get down to desperate range and kind of stay there, um, as Peter is one of the best ways to ensure your safety from going crazy. Um, mm. But there are a lot of cards that support, like like Ben was saying, um, like Yaudel can use these. I know that uh, when when these kind of were first came out, and, and Yaudel came out in, in, I believe, in the Forgotten Age uh, pack, or a Deluxe, rather, um, he could make great use of these, like double use out of these. Mm-hmm. So I think that they're, they're kind of still where they were. They're not, they're not super, um, they're not super obscene or anything like that. They're still good in kind of an, a, a niche sort of a way. Yeah. I think Silas likes them too. Uh, Cause he can be clear yeah. himself down low uh, and then always commit these to something and you'll come back if he, if he draws well or whatever. So you can be like, Oh, well I'll pass on a zero or I'll pass on a minus four if I commit this. And then... Yeah. It's kind of a, like interesting Calvin-esque mentality, right? Where you want to get down to three, not exactly like one, but you, you want to kind of tempt it a little bit to, to get the benefit from these cards. Cause four symbols again is super good. Yeah, oh, I guess Calvin maybe would like these. I don't know. I don't think I ever have room in these when I try to make a Calvin deck. But yeah, I mean, I, I think the limitation is just you know how much does it benefit you to just be able to make one of your skills really high, right? Like you're you're playing a card that does that instead of a card that like accelerates you or lets you do stuff more efficiently with your actions. Like it could be good in some scenarios. Like if seekers generally have i think too much horror to be able to play these efficiently but like if i could play desperate search in that daisy deck that uses uh guiding stones i would certainly do it because in that deck i would love to have a card that commits for four or something but i think in a in a more normal deck you just have to decide like is this better than like a courage that is so flexible and can be committed to like any test anytime right yeah like that's the, noting, yeah. like i guess how you're playing like maybe if you're playing just a standalone that you know you're going to take a lot of horror in you might want to like kind of provisionally put these in your deck or if you're doing like an intrepid run, I know that some people love intrepid, and will carry investigators over from other scenarios or for other campaigns rather. Um, you might just have like mental trauma on you from from defeating Umaroth or whatever, and then coming into a campaign and you're saying, "Well, I mean, I'm gonna have it, so let's let's get the best use of these desert circles that I can." There's also the standard disclaimer that we don't really play on expert very much, but if you're playing on expert, then the stuff I said earlier about four symbols not being super amazing is is wrong. Like, of course, you would love to have a card that commits for four symbols because you need it to be able to pass everything. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Anything else to say about desperate skills? Are we good? No, we're good. Next slide. Three years later, which cards from Carcosa are still auto-includes? 
the uh, the background art here is giving us a helpful little clue and suggestion as to what one of these cards might be. Uh, what are what are some cards that are still auto includes for you guys from Carcosa? So well, I mean, uh, yeah, you're right. There is a hint there. It's it's Warrior Protection too. <laughs> when I was going through the cards uh, for the cycle, uh, I was astonished. I was like, "Oh, Ward Two didn't come out till the end of Carcosa. What did we do? Like, <laughs> how did we how did we handle Ancient Evils? Before that, we had to be good at the game. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so, I mean, that's I mean, that's definitely probably number one. That still gets into most, if not all, Mystic decks I use. Um, it's so powerful to counter not only Ancient Evils but other very annoying uh, encounter cards. Yeah, um, for me, if you're playing Guardian, Stick to the Plan is like one of the best cards, I think, to upgrade into. It's It gives so much consistency in things. I know that it's a, a huge favorite of a lot of people to like upgrade into first and like get your caches and, and taunts and dodges and things out right away. Um, that's like a really big card that I also kind of am wondering how people like kind of muddled through beforehand you're you're forgetting the most auto include guardian card from carcosa which is mark harrigan when you when you start making a guardian deck the first card that you should include automatically (laughs) is is mark harrigan um no i mean that that, those are i I, yeah that, that makes sense i think um for me the one that i was thinking of was let me handle this which is the guardian card that lets you take an encounter card for other people. I think not every guardian always wants to play it, but anybody that has high will should probably play that card because there's probably someone in your group that really cannot do will tests. Um, and it can also save you a lot of actions if someone's going to get an enemy on them and you'd have to like run across the map to kill it. Instead, you can just have it spawn on you. So it has, there's a couple different uses for it. And um, yeah, it, you know, it's, it's always a nice card to have at least one copy of. Yeah. Test of Will came out in this cycle too. It's like a survivor version of Ward, basically. Yeah. Uh, also, Waylay. I feel like Waylay still finds room in a lot of like level zero decks, at least for agility focused people, to have like as a way to deal with enemies. Um, yeah, I was about to say that Waylay is is was kind of one that surprised me because it's it's it can just deal with some horrible enemies so efficiently. And still today, like still today, there are like the spaghetti monsters in space and uh circle undone that have like seven health and like five fight and like three or four agility. So you're just like, great, perfect target. <laughs> two tests. It's gone. Get it out of here. Well, two, two uh, tests and three resources, which is the tough part for a lot of sure. decks, but if you can afford it, then yeah, it's really good. Um, yeah. The, the I was going to joke and say Obal, uh, but that is an auto include. But obviously, that's usually not an auto include. The other one, uh, I would <laughs> no, you're right. It's not an auto include if you're a coward. Uh, it is oh. an auto include. It's, it's an auto include otherwise. The the, uh, the other one I was going to mention though for real is logical reasoning, which I think every secret deck I play at least one of those because you can probably you can probably commit it if not for yourself and someone else, or you might really need to heal horror, or you might really need to get a frozen in fear off of somebody. Like it's just a very flexible card, and like the floor on it is a guts basically that doesn't draw you a card, so that's really solid. Yeah, I was trying to see that. Um, I was surprised that you didn't mention Dan, though. Uh, your very good friend, uh, David Redfield. David Redfield is look that that implies that it's not a really important and wonderful choice to include David Redfield in your deck. It's <laughs> you, not it. Not just everybody should include David Redfield in their deck, but for those who can, 
they're in for a really special adventure. That's what I have to say about David Renfield. Yeah, he, he's not quite an auto-include, but he is. Uh, he can be fun for certain decks. Yeah. Uh, I thought lockpicks came out in the cycle, too. Like That was such a that's such an important card for investigating as a, as a rogue. Yeah. Uh, yeah, you begin to wonder why, like all these all these tiny like little like rogue cards get sprinkled in, and you're like, "Well, skids can do it. That's pretty cool." And then like Wendy's just kind of over in the corner, just like powering up, like you know, <laughs> kind of like, and she still is. She still gets cards like this, and it's absolutely absurd. Um, these cards, like Kievis, was one that came out uh, in the last pack that. Uh, kind of fell off because of the taboo list, I think, because it's yeah. so put in. Yeah, that's, now it's that's not an mind. auto include. That got auto tabooed. Ooh, no. All right, yeah. All right that's it. Streams over. <laughs> oh, <laughs> uh, yeah, you're right. It was it was like a so powerful card, especially in survivors. I think at the time because you could combo it with like Peter and just always have it sit at three and have a billion dollar stats and just pass every test. But because yeah. they tabooed it to be exceptional, so you can only have one copy and cost ten. It's like, yeah, I never think about using it now. That one is a big. Uh, I mean, most of the time, you know, I understand making a card game is really complicated. You're not going to be able to catch everything, but there's maybe like two cards in the game that are like, a, "How did this get printed?" And it's like drawing thin and Kievis. It's like mm-hmm. that's yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I don't know anything else. Oh, Uncage the Soul, which is a card. I think we don't like because of it's not fast uh, or it's not a, uh, it doesn't, it, cause it can broke AO still. <laughs> um, I feel like I put that in a lot of my decks. So recently they've added a couple new mystic uh, money cards. Shiny T. <laughs> yeah, like shiny T. The invincible not, shiny T. <laughs> maybe not quite as necessary, but I still think it's a pretty strong card that I use a lot. Yeah. So. Yeah, exactly. I think for for some of the same reasons, anyway, uh, the floor is that it's just a guts that doesn't draw you a card. Especially for like the four will mystics, like Jim or somebody, where you you are, need to commit stuff to your will a little bit more often than like Agnes or Akachi. So you might as well play cards that can give you will symbols or be used for other things. Right. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of the cards in this deck that were are like more good for specific decks, but is I think general cards. I think that might we covered it. I think that's true. Yeah. Cool. Um, so we've we've answered that's that's a lot of questions, right? We've I think we've answered the most pressing questions that nobody asked about Carcosa. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it seems like or did they? Like we well, uh, they they might have. They might very well have. That I mean, that wraps up all the questions, guys. Share with us your experiences from Path to Carcosa, and thanks everybody for joining us uh, this stream, and everybody who is watching later on YouTube or in the Twitch archive. Um, we had a lot of fun hanging out. We appreciate you guys hanging out with us. And uh, we'd love your feedback on these streams, too. I mean, we've only done two of these so far. And uh, how do they work as a stream? How do they work as an audio-only recording? Reach out to us on Facebook, Reddit, YouTube. Email us at comments at mur.fm. Thanks again, everybody, for joining us and for listening later on. Until next uh, stream, we'll catch you next time. Bye.